We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Baseball Whisperer. The publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The author, Michael Tackett. Just briefly, uh, a little mini bio on Michael. Uh, Michael is an editor in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Previously, he was a managing editor for Bloomberg, the Washington Bureau Chief of the Chicago Tribune, and a national editor at US News and World Report. Please join me as we welcome Michael Tackett to the clubhouse. Thanks so much for coming and coming from Cooperstown, actually. Well, thanks for having me and thank you for all and thank you for this, uh, this really terrific book. It's, it really, I enjoyed reading it and getting ready for this evening. And usually my first question is, which I'll ask you as well, uh, but usually I don't know the answer to this, but you get into the answer in some ways in the book, is how this book came to be, how it came about, uh, and it's a rather personal story, if you could just speak a little bit about sure. that. The, uh, the genesis of the book, was really kind of painful for us because our son was a college baseball player and he had played his freshman year, um, didn't play a lot, but it had gotten better as he had practiced with all these guys. He played in two summer leagues that summer, was going back to school thinking things are great, uh, never been better. And then he got released from the team in the fall and he was devastated by that because he thought he had really worked hard done everything that he could and he put himself in a position to succeed. Um, but he was in a real tough spot because once that happens, you're kind of marked and it's very difficult to land another opportunity. So his only real chance was to try to hook up with another collegiate summer team to try to rehabilitate his career. Um, and that was a tough sell because here was somebody who had been released, so why would a team you know, use that roster spot for that purpose. So he wrote 100 teams around the country. And one team wrote him back and said yes, and that was in Florinda, Iowa. So he jumps into his beat up 2003 Ford Taurus and drives from Alexandria, Virginia to Clorinda, Iowa, which is about 20 hours plus on the road. He had never been there, he didn't know what he was getting into, but he knew he wanted to keep playing baseball. First stop was at the home of Merle and Pat Everly, two really wonderful people who run the team. Uh, he met them. He was in this town of 5,000 people. This is a kid that grew up in metropolitan DC, and now he is, in effect, in the middle of nowhere. But his host family actually lived 10 miles outside of Florinda, Iowa, in a town of 500 people. So it was even more remote. So this was a real test. It was a test for him uh, on many levels. Uh, it was a test of his ability. It was a test of his ability to adapt. And it was a test of him to try to find out if he could kind of restore his faith in people because he wasn't feeling very good about what had happened. So he goes out to practice one day. Merle sees him pitch and says, you're going to be fine. So his first game, I was watching on a computer simulation you know, at home, and he comes in in relief, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? 
gets through the inning, no problem. Great, get him out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> they put him in for another inning. Gets through, no problem. I think, oh gosh, okay, now pull him. <laughs> no, he goes out for another inning. And has a good experience there too. So that sort of set the tone for him for the summer. Uh, he did really well. He was playing against very good competition. And on the way home, he gets a phone call from his college coach saying, um, yes, I think you should be back on the team. So that was how we got connected to this. And then um, my wife and I had gone out that summer to watch the parents weekend they have. And so you go and you watch some games. And that was really the only time that I met Merle Um Only got to speak to him briefly. Um, but about six months after he passed away, uh, 18 months after that season, uh, Pat Everly called me and talked to me about trying to do this in the form of a book. If you could just uh, speak a little bit about this, this baseball whisperer, Merle Everly. He's a, he's a great story because he is a story about redemption in his own personal sense. He was born in a tar paper shack outside of Florinda, Iowa in, during the Depression. Rural Iowa, there are no jobs, it's very difficult. His parents don't get along and they get divorced, and that was pretty unusual in that era. His mother moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and Merle just really was wayward. He wasn't doing well in school, he ends up dropping out of school, he's drinking, he's a really young man, um, and he's headed for a real, real bad path. So his uh, mother and father decide have him move back to Clarinda and live with his grandparents and let's see if we can bring him around. So he goes back to Clarinda and it doesn't start like flipping a switch. He still doesn't isn't back in school. He's still not really um, in good habits. Um, but he stands by the football field one day and he's watching these guys play and, and he and his buddies are taunting the players. So the coach is a guy that's out of Central Casting. His name is John Tidor. John Tidor was the University of Iowa's quarterback, and he had just returned as a highly decorated World War II combat hero. So John Tidor was not about to take any uh, guff from these punk kids who were trying to interrupt his practice. So he confronts Burl very directly and says, you need to come out or get out. That's your choice. And even though it was very stern and very authoritative, it actually was exactly what Merle was looking for. Somebody who would see in him some potential, somebody who would guide him and steer him. So he goes back to school, he becomes an amazing athlete, and he realized that the coach had sort of redeemed his life. And he ends up dedicating his own life kind of to that proposition that if he could use sports as a way to teach something other than sports, that's what he was going to do. And there's a, there's a certain uh, person that I guess he did that too. Uh, his name was Osborne Earl Smith. If you could just speak about Osborne a little. Osborne Earl Smith grew up in South Central Watts in Los Angeles. Um, he lived there during the riots, um, you know, really in a very urban environment. Um, he was a good baseball player as a high school player, but not a great player. 
He was very fortunate, though, because there were major league scouts and college scouts at most of his games. And the reason they were there was that one of his teammates in high school was Eddie Murray, who, of course, went on to become a Hall of Fame baseball player, <laughs> one of the best. So the scouts loved Eddie Murray, but they didn't like this skinny 140-pound, 5-foot-9-inch kid named Ozzy, although they, they saw some potential. So he actually gets an academic scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo uh, in California. And he plays there for a year, and he plays his second year. And at that time, Merle is building the A's into a college team. And at a, a winter coaches convention, he meets the coach of Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he had this way about him that baseball people trusted him. They knew he had played the game at a high level, he could talk the talk, they liked his manner, and they liked the notion of Corinda Isle. Here's a nurturing place, we can send our players, it's probably going to be a good thing. And the coach said, I think I have a shortstop for you. His name is Ozzie Smith. So Merle said, great. So that summer, Ozzie Smith boards a plane to Clarinda, Iowa. Now, there are very few cultural divides as wide <laughs> as South Central Watts and Clarinda, Iowa. Clarinda had a long history of African Americans in town, particularly after the Civil War, where people were fleeing uh, Missouri. But at that time, it was 95% white, if not white. So Ozzie's on the plane, and the only thing he can think in his mind is one word, and that is corn. That's his only concept of where he's going. So he lands, he gets picked up at the airport in Omaha, and they drive him to Corinda. And he's watching as he goes by, and it's cornfields and flat mainly, a little bit of rolling hills, and then he gets to Corinda. He goes to his first practice with Merle. And in that time, you weren't guaranteed to make the team just because you went out there. You were guaranteed the chance to make and Merle looks at him and thinks, boy, this is a pretty scrawny kid. I don't know that this is going to work. So he says, go out to shortstop. And he grabs a bucket of balls, and he starts to hit them to him. And he starts to hit them harder and harder. Then he hits them to his left, to his right. He tries to put spin on He tries to do everything he can. After about a half an hour, it's a hot Iowa day. They're both sweating like crazy. And Ozzie stops and says, Coach, don't you realize you can't get one past me? <laughs> and he realized, I've got my shortstop. And what happened to Ozzie Smith that summer was, for really the first time in his career, he was only thinking about baseball because it's a really concentrated schedule, like 60 games in two months. You're traveling by bus, sometimes three to five hours to the games. You're playing every night, and you're working during the day because one of the things that Merle wanted these guys to know is you've got to earn it, you've got to work for it. Ozzie Smith's summer job, his first summer there, was to run a jackhammer on a construction crew. And he always jokes that he would have hit a lot better if his arms weren't shaking every night because he still felt that jackhammer. Um, the team that year went to um, Alaska to play and actually did very well against the Alaska team. This is a little team from Corinda, Iowa, and their reputation started to build. Ozzie had improved so much that he was drafted the next year but he decided not to sign. He decided to come back and play another year with Merle Everly and the Red Bulls. And he did. He then did sign the year after that, obviously, and then was had a very fast track to the majors from Walla Walla, Washington, to the San Diego Padres, and then to the St. Louis Cardinals. 
But the reason the Ozzie Smith story is so central to this story is it represents more than baseball. It represents the kind of connections that they wanted to build. Because in his case, um, he could have, he was a major league player. You know, this was a nice family, nice people. You know, he could have just said goodbye. But he didn't say goodbye. In fact, not at all. He stayed very connected to them. Uh, when the Cardinals were in the World Series, he asked Merlin Pat Everly to come to his house and stay with his family. Think about all the things on a player's mind, and he, he's having them over. And one of the things, he had some other people there for dinner, and they had a card table, so he's opening up a new card table, and the staple from the box goes right into Ozzy Smith's thumb. It's World Series time, he's the starting shortstop, and he has a bleeding thumb. So this is not a good situation. <laughs> and Merle says, Ozzy, do you have a lemon? And he goes, yeah, I do. He goes, well, go get it. Cut the lemon in half. He goes, this is going to sting, but I want you to stick your thumb right in that lemon. So he sticks the thumb in the lemon, the cut heels, Ozzy can play the World Series. So every time the Cardinals were in the playoffs, he invited the Everly's to be there. They had annual fundraising banquets. Ozzy Smith came back for those fundraising banquets. In 2002, Ozzy Smith is inducted into the Hall of Fame. And you can go read a speech that he gave on that day. He thanks Merle and Pat Everly and the people of Corinda in his speech, and he had Merle and Pat Everly in the front row in Cooperstown to be there with him. So it shows you how connected they were, and also shows you um, how enduring what they built really was when somebody like this could do this. When Merle was very ill, um, Ozzy dropped everything, flew into Kansas City, drove up to Corinda just so he could see him before he passed. And then um, about a year after uh, Merle's death at the fundraising banquet, that was my first time going to one of their banquets as part of my research. And Ozzy had brought um, something special, but nobody knew what it was. And he unveiled it, and there was a bronze sculpture of the bust of Merle Everett. It's a beautiful piece of art and really well done. And that's outside um, Everly Field at Municipal Stadium today. So that's how Ozzy Smith fits into the story, and he continues to go back uh, every year to help them sustain their program. And I don't want to give too much of uh, the whole story away, but the Ozzy Smith part of the story is really amazing. And then I guess at the other end of the spectrum, which I thought was uh, very emotional in its own way, is players who maybe it was not the same relationship that Merle had with Ozzy and a player of a certain generation and the way things started to change. I thought that was very powerful, the way he had a deal, Merle had a deal with guys who were not the Ozzy Smiths of the world. I don't mean just talent-wise, but as humans. Uh, right, it's sort of how athletics has evolved and how youth sports has evolved and you know, we're, we've all seen this where seven-year-olds are being recruited for travel teams and everybody has a special coach for fielding or pitching or hitting, whatever it may be. And, you know, Merle starts out very old school. He tells the guys, you've got to be clean shaven, you've got to have short hair, you've got to have your shoes shine. And you either bought into that or you didn't buy into it. And this is, you know, in the 1970s, probably a lot of guys who wouldn't necessarily like that, but very few guys wouldn't do it. I mean, they bought in and they decided to do that. And then as the years went on, um, he started to think that players kind of changed a little bit. And he thought, 
they came much more entitled and you know, much less willing to put the team first. And he kind of took himself off the field as the field manager in the late 90s, sort of a matter of personal recognition. He thought, maybe I'm not getting it. Um, and I want the program to go on. So then he became the general manager of the team. But it, it, was, it was a difficult time for him to deal with, but it also reinforced to him that what they were teaching was more than baseball. And so if they won a national championship, that's wonderful, but that's not why they were there. They were there to provide opportunity. They were there to occasionally provide somebody a second chance. And that's what really sustained him and got him over that idea of thinking, boy, the game has changed and you know it's not as fun as it used to be. And someone I, I just want you to speak about a little bit. I, it, it's funny because I was reminded of her last night. I watched, uh, there's this new Ken Burns documentary that came out. I think it's called The, Sh uh, the Sharps War or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I watched it. And it's, you think going in, it's all going to be about this, this man, Mr. Sharp. But the real amazing person is, turns out to be the wife. And uh, here, his, Merle's wife, Pat, also is really something. Uh, and I don't know if you had personal dealings with her. Uh, it sounds like you had more with her than you did with Merle. Uh, but she really seems like quite a woman. No, Pat, Pat's become a great friend. And she was indispensable to being able to do this book. Um, I would like to think it was just my charm and good looks to get <laughs> all these players to talk to me. But it was usually Pat would call them and say, will you please talk to me? Uh, and nobody turns her down. I mean, she gets Mother's Day cards from players. She gets holiday cards from players. You know, they all call her Mrs. E. And almost every night that the A's play a game, she's in the concession stand spinning the hot dogs or doing something. She is just a relentless force of nature. And she really was as essential to the success of this as her husband. I mean, without question. Everybody in Corinda says that. All the baseball people say that. All the players say that. Um, and I think the best evidence of that is that the programs endured, you know, in many respects, solely because of that. I mean, she's had help, and she, she would be upset with me for saying it, but that's just the kind of person she is. I mean, she, she walks into the room, and there are no strangers. And just out of interest, uh, your son, wh where is he now? Well, so that story has a happy ending, too. Um, he is now working for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Oh, wow. And, you know, he's just starting out in Major League Baseball, so he had to do a couple of internships. This is his first full-time job. And uh, he's doing really well and thinks that's where he would like to make his career. So uh, That's great. Well, he learned his lessons well. I, uh, yeah, you know, and, and again, the thing that was so good was he came back sort of feeling better about people because he realized, geez, his family just, you know, they fed me, they gave me the games, they cheered for me, they didn't even know me. And this town opens its arms to people and has for, you know, 40 years or more. And he knew that that was kind of a special place and that, you know, you, you couldn't be too cynical about people, that you had to be open to the idea that there were different people. Right.
I have a few more questions, but I want to see if anyone in our esteemed uh, crowd wants to chime in. What was the, it was a personality clash with the coach, or did he, was he finding it difficult to deal with the, the son? You know, you, mm -hmm. if, if you don't mind talking about it, because yeah. that's what I uh, assume this book's about, about how you learn from, you only learn from adversity in this game. That's very true. Um, he never really got a satisfactory answer. It was more like, well, yeah, you know, you're good enough, but, and, uh, and that was part of the frustration. And, but if you want to be an athlete, or I guess really just about anything, and if you want to do it, somebody tells you no, it's your decision. Are you going to accept no? Or are you going to power through it and try to overcome it? And, he won't always succeed, but um, you know, we were very proud of him for what he did because the easier thing to do would have been to say, well, okay, it's over. Uh, and so I think he learned a lot from him. I'm just curious, the original coach, Theodore, Theodore? Theodore. Theodore. Did he have any continued connection with Merle after high school? Or? He did, in fact. Um, they stayed in touch. He ended up moving to Des Moines, which is a couple hours away. So they corresponded, you know, with letters. They talked on the phone, and I was able to interview him for the book. He passed away only very recently, um, and you know, it was just a really terrific, you know, terrific guy, and and stayed also close with Pat. In fact, she said that um, his family was coming back. To, Pat told me that. The Tidor's family was coming back to Corinda just uh, in the next few days just to say hello and then stay connected. Another, I'll throw another question out there. Uh, we were speaking about a little bit about it before, and sometimes I take it for granted from my old sports agent days, I knew how this worked, but I think a lot of people don't. If you could just speak a little bit about uh, these host families. Your son obviously was, was right in the middle of it, uh, but I think people would find that fascinating how these host families operate. Well, when you know you have roughly 30 players are coming every summer, and so you need roughly 30 families in town to say, we'll take in this perfect stranger, we'll have them around our children, we'll have them in our home, sometimes we're not there. Um, these are young college men. <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, and but they refer to the, the concept as keeping instead of like post. That, that's what they call it. That we keep players, and <coughs> for them it has a meaning beyond you know just sort of. Does it have a history before Clarendon? You know, a lot of summer leagues will do that. In fact, even some minor league teams do that, where they have host families because, as you know, the minor league players. Hardly, they made very little money beyond their bonuses that they got. And so um, other leagues have done that, um, but, th but they do it. And it really has worked out in an amazing way where there's a generational thing where um, Lee's family, um, the, the woman, um, her, she did it as a child. Her family did it. So then she does it now you know, with her children. Wants to pass that on to the next generation. And Pat Everly had a great intuitive sense of who, who would be good at it. 
and sometimes even who needed it. Like one of her really good friends, her name was Evelyn Hersberg, and her uh, husband passed away, and they didn't have children. And she thought two things. One, I need more host parents. And, but two, Evelyn might really benefit from this. And so she asked her about it, and Evelyn was a little curious, but she said, well, Pat's asking, so I'll do it. And Evelyn ended up keeping players for 20 seasons. And she has these scrapbooks in her house that are filled with uh, Mother's Day cards, holiday cards, a wedding invitation from Chuck Knobloch, who was one of the players who she kept. Um, another player she kept was the uh, son of Daryl Strawberry. Um, so, you know, to them that was kind of cool because these were people passing. I mean, nobody. She didn't know who Chuck Knobloch really was then. She yeah. just knew he was this kid coming up from Texas. Such a nice term. Yeah, I like that. yeah it really uh, it speaks to, I think, their approach, which is, you know, we're not just giving you a place to sleep. It was this always a Woodback League? There were one or two years where they were metal, but primarily it was wood. There was, you know, there was that era where, you know, everybody was using metal for a while, and then the Cape League, you know, went to all wood, and then most of the other collegiate leagues did that as well. And it's in Iowa, Nebraska, pretty much, or? It, well, the, they used to play in what was called the Jayhawk League, which it's Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, Kansas, and now they're in something called the Mink League, which stands for Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. And so they'll go as far away as they'll go to Sedalia, Missouri, which is in the southern part of Missouri, or St. Joseph's, Missouri, go deep into Kansas, and their goal is to always play at the end of the summer to qualify for the National Baseball Congress Tournament in Wichita. Does MLB do anything with these leagues, like to help some funding and stuff? They don't. The they really don't. And, and that's um, that's why the leagues are a little different, you know, than they used to be, and, and, and why it's, it's tough for some of them to hang on, because, you know, they I think MLB now, the, the scouting system is so different and real-time video is so available. So the idea of a scout, you know, going to seeing four or five summer league games, so, you know, they don't need that so much anymore because they feel like they know enough about the players. And as you know, but it you doesn't always work a, out. <laughs> you, still, you still need a venue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So, I just, okay, MLB. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That might affect that a little bit. I mean, I guess if they subsidize the league as opposed to an individual, maybe they could do that. But yeah, that's interesting. Well, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great stories in here about what Merle has to do from a financial standpoint. Just not that, that he's enriching himself by any means, just try to try to get this thing to, to keep working, uh, to survive. So he's wearing a million hats, and then his own personal story uh, from his own career, uh, what happens to him? Well, so every year he has to go around, and when he started to form the team, the team used to be a team called the Clorinda Merchants, and that was what they called old town team baseball. You saw that a lot in the Midwest, where you know town A would go play town B for bragging rights. And, and when it evolved into a college team, he had to ask the people in town 
if they would back it financially. And he said, this was in 1971, he said, we're gonna need $10,000. And he didn't think they could, he didn't think they would do it. And the people in the city actually said, well, we think we can, and they did. And so they raised enough money for him to credibly put a team on the field. And then that sort of set off um, another dimension of how they function, which is everybody pitches in. So everybody, local businesses, local people, you know, pretty much funded the operation in the early days because there wasn't an Ozzie Smith yet, there wasn't a Vaughn Hayes yet, there wasn't a Bud Black yet. Once those guys went on to fame and fortune, there was a period where the fundraising was much easier <laughs> because the donor network was ample. Um, but now they're in a situation where, um, you know, they operate on a budget of about $30,000 a year. And they're playing against teams that their budgets are 10 times larger. They charge more for their games, they have beer gardens, and they make money on, on that. And they may have a, an owner with more of a profit motive than a you know, charitable motive, if you will. I mean, the one rule that Merle had for the team was that nobody got coaches, nobody got any money. And when the team won a national championship, they were awarded $10,000 in 1981. And he kept that money in the bank. And every now and then would have to draw on it if the team's budget was you know, not great. But he wanted that money in reserve because if the team ever folded, he didn't want them to have any debt. So they still have that money That's a great story. Um, so Merle was kind of a wrong side of the tracks guy, and Pat was sort of a right side of the tracks person. <laughs> Her father owned a jewelry store. They were kind of very well regarded and established in town. And, and Merle was, you know, not looked at in that way. And he got up the courage to ask her out one time, uh, and she said yes. And so they started dating in high school. <laughs> Any other questions from the group? Well, there are a lot of, uh, we touched on some of them, but it, there's really, it's, it's really, it's a beautiful book and a beautiful story, and maybe one day there'll be a movie. <laughs> we'll see how that goes, but there should be. I, I don't know who would play Merle, but. Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> Who's done a Field of Dreams kind of movie? <laughs> yeah, he would probably be pretty good. Uh, but really, it's, it's, it's such a terrific story, and uh, I wish you continued success with this. And uh, it's really, uh, I'm glad your son, son ended up there, and, and that spurred everything else on. Uh, and for those listening, make sure you go out and get this book, which is, again, The Baseball Whisperer, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, written beautifully by Michael Tackett. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Jay. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.